There's always hope. That's what I want to share about this morning. I want to speak about hope. And uh, it's a topic which I think the world really needs. Uh, I've been reading a few stories, articles, not just um, current news, but looking at some people's lives, documentaries. It just struck me how depressing life can really be for people who don't know God. And it's, you might know God really well, and you might be sitting there as a believer, and I, I want to encourage you that it's not just for us to lay hold of hope, but for us to actually be a sign of hope to others through the gospel. So our lives are actually meant to demonstrate something completely different from the hopelessness that you find in the world. And so for me, it's a, it's a message which I feel should encourage all of us this morning. I'm going to start with 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, and I don't mind if the scripture verses don't go up on the screen. There's so many scriptures I'm going to look at. I'm going to mention them. You just have to hear what they say, and I'll explain them further when necessary. But in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, Paul is writing to Corinthian believers, and he's, he's speaking about the resurrection. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So before I explain that a bit more, I'm going to pray and then let's hear what God says to us. Heavenly Father, we need your word to nourish us this morning. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would come upon us and stir up hope and excitement in our hearts. That we would be a people who... Reflect your hope in this world for your glory. Amen. So if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So there's got to be more to hope than just for this life. There's something that we need which should give us hope that goes beyond this life. And I can tell you why that is. It's because in the deepest connections we have with people, we have this moment that comes that tears us away from them and it's called death. And I would tell you that when somebody dies, there's a sense of finality and grief and despair and there can be emptiness and a total bleakness if there's no hope of ever seeing that person again. Now remember when the world was like kind of captured by the death of Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen, this guy who'd lived a very complicated life and I, I looked at his life and I knew where he stood with God and he wasn't in a place where he was looking forward to eternal life. He didn't know Christ. And he died without hope and in my heart there was no hope to ever see him again. And there was this absolute void, this bleakness, this, this kind of terrible emptiness. When you look at someone's life and you think that's just the end of it all. It's never to be continued, never to be celebrated in the flesh in person in reality again that person is gone never to be seen again and it is the same for many people who die without God there is like an absolute bleakness around that moment and there should be because that's the truth of that situation but then when my dad died I was a young man and I noticed within the last year of his life something had changed deeply within his spirit and soul and there was a new peace and joy in him. And we knew the way God spoke to us as a family in the last few days of his life, we knew that he had met with God. At some point in that last year of his life, he had come to know Christ. We could see the change in his life. And when God spoke to me 
a few days before my dad died, before I even knew that he was sick, God visited me in one of my devotion times and I felt God speak very clearly to me and say, don't count on your dad being around. And it was so shocking, I verbalized it out loud to a friend at university. I said, I feel like God told me something, but I don't understand what it means. A few days later, I got a phone call and they said, my dad was in a coma and he was going to die. It was sudden, it was unexpected, it was out of the blue, and the peace of God was there, and I knew this was goodbye for now, but it was not hopeless. There was no sense of bleak emptiness, or frightening despair, or total hopelessness. There was a sense of God is in control and things will be alright. And my dad died and I will see him again in heaven. And so there is this thing, if your hope as a believer is just for stuff in this life, you don't really understand the gospel. Because the gospel is hope for eternity. It says that everything that gets broken and messed up here in God's economy, those who are in Christ are going to experience the full redemption and restoration and glory that is to come. So this is why I want to speak about hope, because the world needs hope that goes way beyond the things in this life. And everybody's got some kind of hope, and when they don't, most of those guys, they have a, a kind of a desperate end. And at the, the stuff I've been reading this last week, I've read about too many suicides, too many drug addicts, too many tragedies, and you realize people are hopeless in some situations. But those who are even hoping, are often hoping in the wrong stuff. Like, what are you hoping for? What do you want in life? A better life? When I was young, I was like, let, just trust me, God, just let me win the lottery. Just, you know, wealth, riches, that'll fix my problems. People put their money in, their hope in money, their, their, their hope in politics, their hope in a better government or a better society or social justice. They put their hope in happiness for themselves or their children, if it's going pretty tough, then you start living vicariously through the next generation and you start to hope that even though you didn't get all the things you dreamed of, maybe the, the next generation will. And people put their hope in their own righteousness in religion. And these are all vain hopes, not things very likely to come about. In many cases, it's just wishful thinking. It's not real hope, it's just our wish. And the Bible tells us not to hope in the wrong things. For example, in John 5 verse 45, Jesus himself said, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, you've put your hope in Moses, in the law. You've put your hope in being able to uphold the Ten Commandments and stand right with God. And actually that same law is going to condemn you before God. You can't hope in the law. Jesus is saying to the religious people of his day, to the Pharisees, your religion is going to disappoint you. You've set your hope on Moses. But actually it's that very thing that Moses brought you that's going to accuse you as a failure. So you're hoping in the wrong thing if you're hoping in the law to be your savior. So if you're hoping in being a good person, it's not good enough. You could be sitting here as an unchristian, non-Christian, and you're thinking, but I'm a good person. I obey the law. I follow the rules. I have a, I'm, a, I'm, a nice, I'm, I'm nice to my neighbor. And 
Jesus says, you've set your hope in the wrong place. In Jonah 2 verse 8, Jonah's praying out his desperate prayer to God. And in Jonah 2 verse 8, Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In other words, he says that there's people who run after false gods and idols and they're actually cutting themselves off from the hope of steadfast love. And he's saying that steadfast love is in God, but when you're looking elsewhere, you're not going to find it. So are you feeling like you need love in your life? Well, if you're pursuing the things that are not God, you're not going to find what you're looking for. Your hope of steadfast love is in God. But those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. Ephesians 2 verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that's the situation mankind is in. When they don't know Jesus, they actually have no hope. They're without God. And that's how we were before we knew Christ. And sometimes we take it for granted that Jesus has brought this peace and stability into our lives as Christians. Once you've been a Christian for many, many, many years, you start to become like, well, that's normal to feel this way. And I'm telling you, actually, hopelessness is normal for the world. For people who don't know Christ, hopelessness is normal. They're pretending to be happy while they, they, they treat themselves with the therapy of alcohol. And they try to forget their troubles and end up with more troubles. And so this state of the world is hopelessness because it's without God. But scripture addresses a very specific hope. And it speaks about a hope that is certain. It's very different from wishing. Because the hope that scripture speaks of is a hope that is certain. Meaning it is definitely guaranteed to come to pass. The, the good that you are longing for is coming, but it's only found in Jesus. So let's look at how Scripture describes hope. It's very specific. It's not just a feeling. It's not just a wishing. It's not just a kind of, uh, if things would just get better. Actually, it's very specific. In Ephesians 4 verse 4, we read, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. So there's a hope that belongs to your call as a Christian. That means intrinsically within being called to Christ, you are being called to this hope that every true believer lives in. Let's learn more about how that works. In Ephesians 1 verse 18 it says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? What I find interesting about that verse is, it shows you that there's some supernatural component to understanding and knowing and experiencing this hope. It says you need to have your eyes open, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. You need something to happen on the inside in order to know that hope to which He has called you. So it takes the opening of our eyes, and I'm going to come back to a scripture where you'll see that even more, more clearly in the Word of God, that 
God opens our eyes, but what is He opening our eyes to? The hope that accompanies the call. What must we see in order to have hope? What must we see in order to have hope? And the Bible is going to answer it plainly. You need to see Jesus. Jesus, the person of hope, and secondly, the gospel is the message of hope through which you come to know Jesus. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So Jesus is the person of hope. You can't find life, the, the hope that you need in life, you can't find it without Jesus. You have to see Him in order to have this hope. So here our hope is named, it's Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus our hope. There is only one hope, it is Jesus. In Colossians 1 verse 27, we read, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want you to think about that for a moment. Christ in you, the hope of glory, which is the eternal, the range of your hope goes all the way from now to eternity where glory is fulfilled. For now we are justified, we are being sanctified, but ultimately we will be glorified. And so the hope of glory is more eschatological, it's in the future, it's when Jesus returns and we see Him as He truly is and all our longings are fulfilled. But what is this hope? Where is it? It is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So not Jesus as a religion, not Christianity as a teaching, not Jesus as an example. Not Jesus as a role model, but Christ in you. Very, very different idea. So this isn't something that we would call like natural, that we could educate you, that we could put you on a course and train you. That's not your hope. Your hope is not that you kind of have more knowledge or more wisdom. Your hope is that Christ must be in you. We are commanded to set our hope on Him. In 1 Peter 1 verse 13 we read, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So I stand in this life now and I face all kinds of Frustrations, disappointments, troubles, successes, joys, wonderful things, good chocolate and pizza, death and despair. And the Bible says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Jesus appears and I see Him face to face, everything I've hoped for will actually be realized. And all these other things are now put in their place if I set my hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why is this? Well, He is our hope of salvation. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8, it says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, 
the hope of salvation. So there's a hope for salvation, but it's not something that you do or earn. It's in Jesus that you get salvation. And that's what I'm hoping for. Just like anybody who really understands the gospel, I'm hoping to be welcomed into heaven, not because I'm good enough, but because Jesus paid for my sins. And so I know one day when I arrive, if there was a gate into heaven, and if St. Peter was standing there guarding it, or an angel saying, why should I let you in? I'm not going to look at myself and start saying, what makes me worthy of getting into heaven? I'm going to look and say, Jesus, Jesus died for me. And when you know that, you have this hope of salvation. Hebrews 7 verse 19 says, For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And Hebrews, the writer to the Hebrews is speaking about Jesus and the covenant that He makes for us. And that's the better hope through which we draw near to God. So if you're looking for God, if you're searching for Him, you'll find Him through Jesus. He is your hope of being near to God. He's the hope of eternal life. In Titus 1 verse 2, it says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So then you start to get a glimpse of why our hope is certain. Why would I be able to hope for eternal life? Because God promised it. Because God promised and what about God's character? He never lies. So, God promised, He said, in my Son, I will give you eternal life. So I've come to Jesus, I've said, I want that God. I want to receive Jesus as my Savior and my Lord, and I do by faith. And now I have hope in a God who's made a promise that I will have eternal life, and He never lies. So, see you on the other side if you believe with me. It's that certain. doesn't matter what happens in this life. It doesn't matter how bad I mess up. See you on the other side. Because Jesus is my hope. So this hope is certain because it rests on a promise made by God. And Titus 2 verse 13 says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What am I doing? Working for my blessed hope? No, waiting. I do work because I have faith and there is a gospel message to proclaim and I do want to lift up the name of Jesus as long as I have breath, but I'm not doing that to get into heaven. I'm waiting to get into heaven, not working to get into heaven. I don't, I don't hope in how much fruit I have to be able to arrive in heaven and say, look God, I was a good pastor, you've got to let me in. No, that's not why you get to heaven. I don't get to heaven for any reason besides the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 3 verse 7 says, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs. Heirs are those who receive an inheritance. So we are, as believers, we are heirs of a promise of eternal life that God makes good on through Jesus so you could be sitting here and you sinned this last week and you feel disqualified or you might have drifted from God and you feel unworthy. But actually, it doesn't change the fact that if you've become a believer, 
You're a member of God's family and you get your inheritance. You just do. You're an heir of this promise. You receive it. You don't have to pay for it. He's our hope of righteousness. Galatians 5 verse 5 says, For through the Spirit, by our faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Again, where does the righteousness come from? Like Romans said, but now a righteousness from God is revealed. So God gives us righteousness through Christ. He's our hope of righteousness. So how good are you? Well, you should be better. I should be better. I'm not excusing our sin and saying it's okay to live as you please. There's consequences for all that nonsense, that badness that we carry out. But I'm still waiting for the hope of righteousness. In other words, it's something that's coming to me. It's not something I have to obtain, earn, achieve, win. And in fact, the next verse says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Meaning, you can't buy uh, your acts like circumcision, you can't get righteousness. So whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, whether you're a law keeper or a law breaker, whether you're a Jew or not a Jew, it doesn't matter because actually all that counts is faith working through love. And so that's how the gospel works in our lives, faith working through love. So where do we find hope? Well, it's in Christ. But it's also through the scriptures that we consciously recognize this, that we come to remind ourselves again and again, you have reason for hope. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So what happens is the more I look at the word of God and the more I persevere in the, fa the faith, the more hopeful I become, the more convinced I become that this is for real, that this deal of the gospel is true, that the righteousness is coming to me, that eternal life is coming to me, that the glory that lies ahead is certain. And this hope is secure because it's anchored in heaven. Hebrews 6 verse 19 tells us, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So there's this Jesus who as our high priest gave himself for us and then he effectively went where we couldn't go into the presence of God and made an offering of his own blood as an atonement for our sins. So he goes behind the curtain and that's where our hope is and it's anchored eternally. Colossians 1 verse 5 says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So where does my hope reside now, right now in this present moment? My hope is in Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father and lives as a high priest, ever interceding for me. For me. Jesus is interceding for me. And if you are a believer, He's interceding for you. He lives to intercede for the saints. So this hope reaches beyond death and it reaches beyond earth. It's eternal and it's positional. It's positioned in heaven. It's not in earth that it could be corrupted or contaminated or broken or destroyed or stolen. 
1 Thessalonians 4 verse 13 says, We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. So there it is, the kind of story I was telling you about my dad. It, it's found in that scripture. You don't have to grieve as others do who have no hope. You see, there's a resurrection component. There is an eternal life. There is a heaven-secured future. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if there's no resurrection, Paul said, we're to be more pitied. The verse I started with, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. What Paul's really saying is, if you don't get the value of this hope, if you don't understand the certainty of it, the security of it, the longevity, its eternal nature, that it's in the future and it's secure, that it's in heaven and it's unassailable, that your hope lies there, secure in Christ Jesus. If, if all you think is that Christianity is about being a better person on earth, you should be pitied. See, the problem with that view is that just being a moral person or being a good person is meaningless if there's no eternal consequence to it. It's pointless. If, if Jesus is actually just some made-up story, if he's just a philosopher or a prophet who died, then I should leave Christianity as fast as possible and have all the fun I can on earth. I should forget all the moral frameworks that I live under from the Bible, and I should just look at the, the fun I could have in life. What do they say? He who dies with the most toys wins. Just accumulate as much stuff as you can, have the fastest car you can, have as many affairs as you want, just live life to the max in terms of sin. Because why? Why restrict yourself? Why try to be good if there's no point to it in eternity? Why try to be moral? Why try to pretend to be a Christian? See, anybody who's that kind of Christian, who's just living for, for like being a better person, it, it's pointless. You just, it's like a waste of time. It's important to see that we're not hoping for a better life. That's, this is part, the antithesis now of those ideas that you would just think it's all about this life. It's important to see we're not hoping for a better life. Which of the disciples through following Jesus got a better life? Prison, floggings, people rejecting them, and ultimately pretty much all of them were martyred. Crucified upside down, sawn in two. Think of any gory death. That's what they looked forward to. They didn't get a better life in terms of Joel Osteen's, you know, your best life now. Sounds like a book title. Seven steps to being, you know, like the best version of you. What rubbish the world is offering even masked in the guise of Christianity. Numerous people telling you how to maximize your life and the Bible telling you, minimize it. That I should decrease, that he should increase, says John the Baptist. And what happened to him? 
John the baptizer. He wasn't Baptist denomination, was he? Baptizer. <laughs> what happened to him? You know that when they cut your head off, it's not fun? <laughs> Can't recommend it. Was his life better? I don't know. Herod didn't dig him. Anyway. So, it's not what people sometimes say, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. Come to Jesus and then God will lead you on a tough road. He'll frustrate you because He won't give you what you want. He won't answer all your prayers. He'll make you angry. Sometimes you'll feel abandoned. You'll be crying out to God, why Lord? And that's where some martyrs are. How long, O Lord, before you bring justice on the earth and vindicate us? We died for you. We, you know, those martyrs on the throne waiting for Jesus to return to earth. Because only then will you truly see the fulfillment of all these things. And so, this is the gospel really. It's more like come to Jesus and you have hope that transcends this life. You have hope that transcends this life. So that means whatever disappointment I get in this life, it's okay, I've got Jesus. I've got eternity coming. I've got glory ahead of me. I've got righteousness awaiting me. Not condemnation, not judgment, not punishment, not mocking. What stands ahead for you and me as weak, frail failures, as we are not morally perfect and never will be until we are transformed into glory, so here I stand in the flesh and I say, I have to have an eternal hope. And I do have it in Jesus. I've prayed for people who are sick and some have got healed and I didn't know if it was me or the doctor. Both are blessings. Medicine is a blessing. Miracles are a blessing. I believe in miracles. But I've also prayed for people and nothing happened. Does my hope lie in the fruit of seeing God move? No. My hope lies in the promises He's made. He keeps His word. He never lies. So now when I pray for someone who's sick, and I'm happy to pray for people who are sick, I don't think this is a nerve-wracking moment. You know, what's going to happen? Is God going to be proven, you know, or not proven? It's, not, it's just in His hands. And sometimes people get better, and sometimes people don't. Should you not pray, or not expect miracles? Nonsense. You should believe, and trust, and pray, and receive whatever God has. So this is my point. Our hope is anchored in Christ, and it's anchored in heaven. It's not even in the visible fruit of our lives, or our ministry, or our faith. I should be able to preach the gospel and be satisfied that I preached the gospel even if no one received Christ. Why would I be satisfied? Because I preached the gospel. I was obedient. I was obedient and God's name is going to be vindicated. Because if those people could stand up one day and say, God, you never sent a messenger. God could say, I did. I gave you the invitation. You didn't respond. That's on you, not me. God will be vindicated. I've preached that recently. The point is, we as believers shouldn't live a roller coaster ride based on how fruitful we feel we are. We should live by faith in the promises of God. 
in His trustworthiness and the things He's told us. And then go out and live boldly with faith that God will move mightily. I still want to see revivals in my lifetime. I still want to see thousands of people turn to Jesus. But not based on a superficial message of Jesus will make your life better. No, you'll come to Jesus and He will say, I've got a calling that comes with hope and it has to be eternal because in this life you will have trouble. In this life you won't have it easy necessarily. Where am I? In my notes. Colossians 1 verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It is a hope of the gospel. That is how it comes to you, by grace contained in the gospel. So now we're turning to this message of hope. There's one gospel. It's not a teaching, but an account of the incarnation, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you know that the gospel is not a teaching? It's an account, it's a testimony of someone who came and lived and died and rose again. It's a declaration of an historical fact. It's telling the world Jesus is your hope and He is alive today. Amen. We must not replace the gospel with the teachings of Jesus. That's right. Yes. It's not okay to do that. We're not teaching a better way to live or a new morality. We can bring the teachings of Jesus to those who have turned to Jesus and received Him. But the gospel is not to be replaced by the teachings of Jesus. It is a declaration of something that has been done. A man who came and gave his life for you as the Son of God who lives eternally. Jesus' teachings are only properly understood in the light of the person of Jesus, His life, death and resurrection. Because Christianity is not a philosophy or a religion. And it never will be. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21 to 24. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, Jesus the person is the message we want to bring to the world. We are not trying to indoctrinate people in a teaching. In 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Be very careful that the church doesn't become a sophisticated vehicle for teaching people a new set of rules for a better life, for this life only. That's not our primary message. I can teach you the ways of God which will lead to a better life, but the only hope is Jesus, if you know Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a point of this, that Paul did not proclaim the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This is how... It's put, the church is built on a revelation of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The early church was filled with those who carried a conviction about the resurrection, not firstly a common teaching. 
Did you know this? The early church is not built on a common teaching. It's built on a testimony of Jesus' resurrection. He is alive. I saw him. That's what they say. So this is what made the church alive and what made it the church in the early church. This is how Paul left Judaism to become a Christian. An encounter with the risen Lord. A revelation of Jesus. In other words, what we need to be doing is getting people to meet Jesus. Leading, calling them to Him and introducing them to Him. We're not needing a Bible class to disciple a person first. We need them to encounter Him first and then we disciple them. And so you must declare the risen Lord. You mustn't just teach people Christianity. This is how it comes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. I'm going to read to verse 8. Now I want to, I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, meaning died. Why does he write that? He says, you can go and ask them. You can go and ask them, did you see Jesus? And they will say, I saw him with my own eyes. He was alive after the crucifixion. After he died in front of everyone on the cross, I saw him and he is alive. He is risen from the dead. Now this is the fundamental conviction we must have about our faith. To be a Christian in this modern generation where people argue ideas repeatedly on the internet and they say to you, this is just a system of beliefs. Christianity is not just a system of beliefs, it is a testimony of the risen Lord. I saw him, he appeared to at least 500 people, says Paul. You can go and find them and ask them. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That was the road to Damascus. That was where Saul was persecuting the church and Jesus appeared in a blinding light and he he said, Who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting. And who was Paul really persecuting? The church. The body of Christ. And Jesus says, You're persecuting me because me and my church, we are one. And Paul was utterly transformed because he had that life-changing encounter with the person of Jesus. So don't tell me that you become a Christian because you believe a teaching. You become a Christian because you meet Jesus. By faith, He comes to you, you hear Him call you and He says, You are mine. And you say, Yes, Jesus. I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. I want you to come and live inside my heart. There's, there's no other form of Christianity, otherwise you're not really saved. You just, you just went to church and heard a bunch of stuff. So in that passage, it says in verse 5, appeared, in verse 6, appeared, in verse 7, appeared, in verse 8, appeared. You see, it's all about seeing Jesus. 
We must not lose the centrality of this to other causes. D.A. Carson puts it this way. If you don't know who D.A. Carson is, Google his name. He's Canadian, I think. Read some of his books. Very bright guy. So probably when I read his quote now, you'll be like, what, what, what? So D.A. Carson says this. Perhaps more common yet is the tendency to assume the gospel, whatever that is, while devoting creative energy and passion to other issues, marriage, happiness, prosperity, evangelism, the poor, wrestling with Islam, bioethics, wrestling with the pressures of secularization, dangers on the left, dangers on the right, the list is endless. What he's saying is, Christianity in this day and age often just assumes the gospel. It's like, ah, oh, that was kindergarten, we left. Whatever it is, they don't have a stronghold of it. And then they go and start dealing with issues. Let's just do church so we can have men's ministry that makes you a better man, women's ministry that teaches you how to cook, cooking, <laughs> knitting as well, for sure. Um, I'm trying to be fake sexist, but you know, we create all these partitions in the church and we do specialist ministry to every category and none of them really understand the depth of the gospel yet. And then we turn to the world and we say we need to deal with gender issues and we need to confront secularization and we need to stand up for Christians in government and we need to fight for the poor. And we do all the issues, but we've just assumed the gospel. If the gospel is merely assumed, while relatively peripheral issues ignite our passion, we will train a new generation to downplay the gospel and focus zeal on the periphery. Yeah. That's powerful. That means you'll create a whole lot of cause-driven Christians who are only into issues. And they don't understand the gospel and then they can't propagate the gospel. They can only try to fix issues in society. And that's hope for this life only. Yes. Totally lost sight of eternal hope. D.A. Carson goes on, Moreover, if in fact we focus on the gospel, we shall soon see that this gospel, rightly understood, directs us how to think about and what to do about a substantial array of other issues. These issues, if they are analyzed on their own, as important as they are, remain relatively peripheral. Ironically, if the gospel itself is deeply pondered, and remains at the center of our thinking and living, it powerfully addresses and wrestles with all these other issues. So, if you truly want to understand and wrestle with the issue of, let's say, uh, gender identity or gender politics, then you should start with the gospel. And make sure you have that right and centered in your life before you... And it will then lead you to see and understand and wrestle with the other issues. So I'm finishing now with the verse I started with. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. That goes on to say in verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning He's gone ahead of us. He's the first resurrected one, but we too, when Jesus returns, will be resurrected. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That's Jesus, our eternal hope.
Won't you stand and the band can come up? Lord Jesus, you are our hope. Your gospel is a message of hope and bringing people to know you is our central purpose. As we remain on earth, we are here to witness and to worship the living Savior. Jesus, may your name be lifted up in this church in every one of our lives. May we be true believers who know you, Jesus, who walk with you by your spirit, who fellowship with you, and who testify of you as our living hope. There is no other way for us to look. There is no other object for us to pursue. It's you, Jesus. We want to worship you and magnify you together. Amen.